How important is the historical trustworthiness to the Christian faith? Consider Jesus' death, his burial, his post-resurrection experiences, his ascension to heaven. Is the veracity of the eyewitness accounts to these events necessary for our salvation? Could we be saved if Jesus did not actually rise from the dead? Could we be saved by the message, even though untruthful, or by the witnesses, even though deceived? Most world religions do not, utter, uh, or do not utterly depend on historical trustworthiness or accuracy. If, I, if, if, we turn, if it turned out we found uh, historically that uh, Gautama Buddha never lived, Buddhism could live on. If Buddhism, the path to enlightenment, it's based on good works, it's based on meditation and the pursuit of wisdom. So theoretically, Buddhists could do all of that even if the historical Buddha was somehow discredited. Well, we have within Christendom those who really argue the same way about Jesus and the witness of the apostles. They would say, for instance, that it doesn't really matter if Jesus rose from the dead or not. The historical accuracy is not all important. If we follow the spirit of the Jesus legend, we can be good Christians. The apostles of Jesus Christ knew better. They adamantly rested the new birth on the historical trustworthiness of their eyewitness interactions with the incarnate Christ. It's not difficult to find examples of this, but just consider three from the pen of the apostles. The apostle Peter said, we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. But we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. Now he has in mind particularly the transfiguration. For when we received honor and glory from God the Father, the voice was borne to him, to Jesus, by the majestic glory. This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Notice this again. We ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven. For we were with him on that holy mountain. Consider the words of the Apostle John. That which was from the beginning, and here he will, it's very clear that he's speaking of Christ. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, we've looked upon, we've touched with our hands concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest and we have seen it. We testify to it. We proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim to you. The Apostle Paul. But if there's no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain. And your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he indeed raised Christ. 
whom he did not raise, if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. The creator of the physical universe took on the body and nature of a man in the person of Christ, died on a Roman cross, was buried in a tomb, rose bodily from the dead, and appeared to his disciples over 40 days before ascending into heaven where we wait his promised return where he serves at the right hand of the Father, communing there as we await his return. So, our salvation, let's be clear, our salvation depends on the accuracy of the eyewitness accounts to the reality of these historical events. Our salvation depends on the truthfulness, the accuracy of the eyewitness accounts to the reality of these historical events. This is why the apostles of Jesus are so important in the life of Christ's church and in the salvation of God's people. We've refreshed our understanding of Acts chapter 1, uh, verse 1 and following here. Remember, just as you skim down again through verses 1 through 3, for 40 days the risen Christ appeared to the apostles, teaching them about the kingdom of God. Verses 4 through 8, Jesus instructs them to wait for the baptism of the Holy Spirit that was promised in the Old Testament, and then to go in that power to witness to the nations, as we have been singing this morning. And we are those nations among them. Verses 9 through 11, Jesus ascends into heaven, and angelic messengers prophesy his eventual return Verse 12, then, in accordance with Jesus' command, they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey away. And when they had entered, they went up to the upper room where they were staying. Here they are, Peter, John, James, Andrew, Philip, and Thomas, Bartholomew, and Matthew, James, the son of Alphaeus, and Simon, the zealot, and Judas, the son of James. All these, with one accord, were devoting themselves to prayer together with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers. They're waiting there upon the coming and the baptism of the Holy Spirit. These apostles named here now specifically. So the most significant cause in the universe is the mission of the risen, reigning, returning Lord Jesus Christ. And as we considered last week, it is important that we integrate then every smaller cause into this larger cause. We're not called to any cause in this world apart from this larger cause. But we come back to the moment here and waiting in this room, there are 11 men referred to as apostles who will bear witness to the reality of Christ risen and reigning. In the power of the Holy Spirit, they will carry forward the work of the risen Savior. 
So while waiting for the baptism of the Spirit, Peter recognizes the utter importance of this apostolic office. There's others here with them, some of the brothers of Christ, his mother, others mentioned of these 120, but they're waiting here, and as they do, he recognizes the importance of the apostolic office. I think undoubtedly in their prayers, also meditation upon Scripture, indeed the meditation on Scripture is what informs their prayers, and they're coming to recognize the significance of their position in this moment. And they're coming to recognize that something's broken. Something needs fixing in a sense. And I say fixing kind of in both senses of the term. Repair and establishment. Fixing the foundation of the church is what we find now in the second half of the book of Acts chapter 1, second half of Acts chapter 1. So notice here, first of all, that the apostles face the defection of Judas. Verse 15, in those days, Peter stood up among the brothers, and the company of persons was in all about 120, and said, brothers, the scriptures had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David concerning Judas who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. For he was numbered among us and was allotted his share in this ministry. So these gathered, these 120, perhaps assembled tightly in this upper room. They were created for crowds of people, at least small uh, family crowds, but possibly spilling out side of the room onto the flat roof. We don't know precisely where they were, but Peter steers the disciples to face the bitter providence of Judas's defection. In verse 16, Peter will stress that Judas' betrayal of Jesus was not bad luck. This was not one bad mistake that Jesus made in his ministry. Notice verse 16 and the stress on this here. The scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus, who betrayed Jesus. This is found in the Old Testament prophecies. So Judas' betrayal, fulfilling the Holy Spirit's words through King David. We'll return to this idea in verse 20. But Peter will employ the same argument in his sermon in Acts Chapter 2, when he declares that Jesus was, his words, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. You, however, crucified and killed him by the hands of lawless men. This is a very significant interpretive understanding to grasp as we read the Bible. We have both ideas here, divine purpose and human agency working in tandem. We have the confluence of the divine will with human responsibility. God ordained his crucifixion. God handed him over to his enemies. They, in their wickedness, put him to death. It's a both and, not an either or. It is divine will and human responsibility. He applies that same idea here to Judas. Jesus didn't miscalculate here. This wasn't the one mistake he made. This wasn't bad luck. This was according to the divine plan that the Messiah would be betrayed 
by one of us, Peter says. God works all things according to the counsel of his will, Ephesians 1.11, and Judas' betrayal is no exception to that law. This truth does not take away, then, Judas' responsibility. It does not take away the pain of the betrayal to this band of apostles either, does it? And verse 17 makes that fairly clear. He was numbered among us. And I, I, I think we can rightly put the emphasis there, underline three times the word us. He was one of ours. He walked with us. He walked with Jesus. But he betrayed him. He was allotted. He was allotted his share in this ministry. He was chosen by Christ as an apostle. So think of it. Judas witnessed Jesus' baptism. He heard that voice from heaven. He was there when Jesus fed the thousands, when he stilled the sea, when he healed the sick and cast out demons and raised the dead. Judas saw it. Judas had a front row seat to Christ's teaching and he had a front row vision of the utter beauty of the only sinless life that's ever graced this earth. Jesus met Judas and chose him as his apostle. The disciples came to trust Judas and believe that he was one of them, but they had to face the sobering reality that Judas betrayed Jesus to death and had joined the forces of Satan. Now, at verse 18, verses 18 and 19 together appear to be Luke's parenthetical insertion. We have that indication in the ESV translation. I think it's the right translation to look at that as a parenthesis. So you're going to connect verse 17 down to verse 20. But first, this aside on Judas and his betrayal. Now, this man acquired a field with the reward of his wickedness. And falling headlong, he burst open in the middle, and all his bowels gushed out. And it became known to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, so that the field was called in their own language, Akeldama, that is, field of blood. According to Matthew 27, we learn that the Jewish authorities actually purchased the field after Judas died, but... His betrayal of Jesus was what generated the funds. And so in a manner of speaking, in a legal fiction, it can be said that Judas purchased this lot. There's no confusion there. We're not sure exactly what it means that he fell headlong and burst open in the middle, but obviously it's a gruesome scene. The possibilities are that his dead body swelled and burst open, perhaps when it was cut down from a branch by those who discovered his body after he had hung himself, or it could be that he hung himself, and there's some tradition to this end, that the tradition doesn't mean it's any more real than any other possibility, but there are those who have said traditionally that the land was at at the crest of a valley 
two valleys, Hinnom and Kidron, and that his body broke a branch and he spilled down that steep incline and burst open at the bottom. Whatever the case, it was a hideous death and it befit the end that Judas deserved. It's not here to revere him, but here to say, thus ends the life of the betrayer of Christ. One gloriously risen, the other through his own greed and selfishness and betrayal, this hideous end. Now there's a lot more going on in Judas's heart than the love of money, to be sure. Yet, it was certainly a thrill to score the 30 pieces of silver. Judas was thrilled with the prospect of betraying Jesus for that reason. But like all sinful choices, the pleasure in sin is fleeting, and it filled his soul with despair. And he came to realize very early on, I have done horribly. I've, done, I've chosen wickedness. And he comes into such deep despair that he takes his own life. It reminds us that there's only one sin with which you will ever live at peace. There's only one sin with which you will ever live at peace, and that is the sin you confess to God and leave behind and leave in his hands. Judas felt the depth of remorse. He did not repent. And dark despair overwhelmed his soul, and that is really the end of every sinner who does not turn and find grace in Christ's forgiveness. It is just regret, leading to ultimate despair. Now Peter returns to the point of verse 16 and the fulfillment of Scripture. Remember that idea there, this by the Holy Spirit through the mouth of David concerning Judas, these prophecies. He comes back to that now in verse 20, and he picks up those Old Testament references. For it is written in the book of Psalms, may his camp become desolate, and let there be no one to dwell in it. And another Psalm, let another take his office. Psalm 69, Psalm 109 in order, and in both Psalms, David is the one who is oppressed by enemies, and he calls on God to deliver him from these enemies and to issue justice, to respond to these enemies who have betrayed him and harmed him unjustly with appropriate discipline and judgment. And so in the first case, he says, may this one who has betrayed me, may his camp become desolate. Let there be no one to dwell in it. Let there be no one who carries on the work of Judas. And in Psalm 109, let another take his office. Let another person step into the place where he was. So in reading these Psalms, Peter recognizes that the singular voice fulfilling that anguish to cry of betrayal on the part of David was not David but his greater son, the Lord Jesus Christ. He fulfilled these prophecies ultimately. So Peter then recognizes that this office, this position of leadership must be filled by the one who vacated. We need to fill in where Judas vacated this position, this office. This leads to a decisive moment then in the history of the church. And as the apostles face the defection of Judas, they now orchestrate the selection of Matthias to replace him. 
verse 21. So, one of the men who have accompanied us during all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John, that is, John the Baptist, his baptism of Jesus, until the day when Jesus was taken up from us, one of these men must become with us a witness to his resurrection. So this apostle, this official eyewitness to the risen Christ, had to be there when Jesus was baptized. Had to see his ascension into heaven and much of his ministry and teaching between those two poles. It says that when Jesus was in and out among us, that speaks of close fellowship. So it was someone who was in that close circle of disciples of Jesus. Remember, it wasn't just the 12. There were always others around who were part of all that Christ was doing. It needs to be one of these individuals who joins us as a witness. And I I don't want to belabor it too long, but it comes back to those texts. We touched him. We saw him. We witnessed what he said and what he did. This is utterly important. It's historically rooted. So he does not want to place one in this position of apostleship who has learned these things from others. Doesn't make it any less true. But this necessitates one who is an eyewitness. So such an eyewitness of his resurrection must be placed in Judas's place. The apostleship here, used in the New Testament informally at places, but here speaking formally of one who who's, uh, can give eyewitness account of the literal resurrection of Messiah. Now let's ask, why? Why not just go with the 11? Why do we have to have 12? Why must he be replaced? Well, I think in part it's the, the prophecy that we find here in Psalm 109. He's referring to that. But we would not say that there always had to be 12 or that there could only be 12. So let's take that first idea. There doesn't always have to be 12 apostles because in chapter 12 and verse 2, about 15 years later, James is martyred for Christ and we do not replace him. He's not replaced. It doesn't have to be 12. They can die and they do. They die off, in fact. It doesn't only We wouldn't say it this way, that it could only be 12. For James, Jesus' brother, Galatians 1.19, and Barnabas and Paul, Acts 14.14, become apostles in addition to the 12, and arguably there are others. So it's not the number itself in some sense, but at this early stage, it is 12. It needs to be 12 on the basis of this text of Scripture. Perhaps... I would suggest also on the basis of this passage. You are those, says Jesus, who have stayed with me in my trials, and I assign to you, as my Father assigned to me, a kingdom, that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on thrones judging the twelve tribes of Israel. Perhaps some direct connection there to the twelve. But at any rate, two men commend themselves as candidates to replace Judas. Verse 23. And they put forward to Joseph called Barsabbas, who was also called Justice and Matthias, 
And they prayed and said, You, Lord, who know the hearts of all, show which one of these two you have chosen to take the place in this ministry and apostleship from which Judas turned aside and, go, and to go to his own place, that is, to be judged by God, to be separated from God. And so they cast lots for them, and the lot fell on Matthias. And he was numbered with the 11 apostles. Now, some things strike us as rather strange here, don't they? Uh, it's strange that they would choose two men, not one. Why would they not just start with one? And why not several candidates, maybe to soften the disappointment of the one not chosen or something like that? But far more strange to us than that is that they chose him through the casting of lots. Well, that's really odd. Uh, often, it'd be, I guess, very much for us like flipping a coin. Uh, heads, it's Matthias, and tails, it's Joseph. That type of idea. But often they would they'd take two stones of different color and put them in a bag and shake it up and reach in and whichever one was chosen was the choice. Or perhaps in a, in a pot where they would just uh, get them stirred up inside and again without seeing they would uh, pull out one stone. Strong belief in the providence of God in this and I'm not saying you should try this at home. I don't, I don't think it's been presented to us as a way to discern the will of God. But in this situation, with this gathering, in prayer, depending on the Spirit, they come down to these two. And who knows, maybe there were 7, 10, 20 that were discussed, and it came down, they just could not choose between these two. We don't know these uh, ideas, they're not given to us here, and it doesn't really matter. But don't you feel just a little bit sorry for Joseph? Uh, you just can't hardly read that here and not think that way. But I think as we think about it, nominated as he was, he was certainly a godly man and a trusted follower of Jesus. Further, not being selected as one of the twelve did not in any way lessen his calling and responsibility to witness Christ crucified and risen. So he had plenty to do to serve the Lord. And I also suspect that he accepted the decision as God's decision and moved forward trusting God's purposes. And we might tend to think maybe there was something not quite right in his heart. Or it could be that he was sooner to die. And God knew that. I mean, there might be absolutely nothing that was wrong with him as a person in this. None of this is, of course, really uh, substantive for us to even consider because it's not revealed in the text. The point being, they go from here knowing that the will of God has been accomplished. They dealt with the tragedy of Judas by facing it honestly. And they respond with dignity and devotion to Christ's cause. They, in a sense, fix the foundation of the church. They repair it and set it in place. Judas has betrayed Christ. Matthias now replaces him. And as you're looking at chapter 1 and getting a sense of its point, it's of the theme, we see so much emphasis here on the apostle and apostleship, we can't miss it. It's right there in verse 2. It's the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. And then, and, and I'm skipping many references to them, but down to verse 13 where they're literally named. And then verse 25. 
to take the place of this ministry and apostleship. And then the section, the chapter ends at verse 26 on the word apostles. It's very clear that the apostles are the emphasis here in chapter 1. The risen Christ's work will continue on through them. Well, let me just, as we reflect on this, this is utterly significant to us on many levels to understand this ministry, to understand how God worked through these individuals. But let me bring out uh, four ideas here as we just apply and think, meditate for a moment on this passage. First of all, as we respond, the apostles are not heroes that we must adore. The point is not deep devotion to them as uniquely gifted, important, or unusually godly men. There were others who were called apostles. There were others doing the very same work. We should not think that somehow they were uniquely special as individuals. In fact, what do we have that helps us know they weren't? We have what's called the four gospels, right? Time after time you go, yeah, they were pretty normal people. They were given to fear. They were given to pettiness, to selfishness, to infighting, to unjust anger toward others, all kinds of things. You don't look at the apostles in the Gospels and say, well, I want to be just like them. You say, I want to be like them in some ways and not in others, right? So, so this isn't the idea that we would just revere them in some unique way. There is no place in the Christian faith for what is called hagiography. It's not a word we use very often, but it speaks of excessive praise or unfounded admiration. We don't have pictures of the 12 apostles in our building or the fake likenesses of them to pretend that we know who they were. No, not, it's not the point. And we see this in, maybe in a sense in the Roman Catholic Eastern Orthodox traditions where there are icons of saints that are revered and there's such great devotion that is shown to them. We don't have feast days for the apostles. We don't picture them or bow down to them. They were just men, but they were men chosen by God. And that's the key. And secondly then, the apostles were historically positioned to carry forward the works and the teaching of the risen Christ. This is unique, and this we do revere. Acts 1.1, Jesus began to do and teach. Remember that? He be, this is what he began to do and teach, Gospel of Luke. Now we come to Acts, and we're going to deal with what he continues to do and teach. How does he do that? The book of Acts details what the risen Christ continues to do and teach to this day, and it is much through the ministry of the apostles. Hamilton has said this in Luke's narrative, the apostles continue to do the mighty deeds of Jesus. And readers of Acts behold the triumph of the crucified one over the forces of sin and death. These first fruits of the victory of the kingdom of God display the organic connection between the teachings of the apostles and the signs and wonders God continues to do through them and their associates. Jesus' story is not over when he dies. It's just beginning. He rises he pours out this Holy Spirit upon his followers and he continues to do miraculous works through these official representatives. Continuing Jesus' ministry, wielding his authority, the apostles cast out demons. 
They heal the sick. They raise the dead. Jesus judged the forces of evil. He began to reverse the curse. He delivered a death blow to death. And the apostles continued those miraculous works in Jesus' name as they advance his kingdom. Such miraculous displays of Christ's power characterized the apostolic age until the writings of the apostles were finalized as the teaching of Jesus. Come back to that point in a moment. But do think of it, before we move on, do think of it in this way. The New Testament is the teaching of Jesus. I remember some point in my Christian walk being confused by that, thinking, well, Jesus didn't teach on a lot of things. And there are people who come in and say, yeah, Jesus said nothing about this. He said nothing about this. We don't need to follow what his followers said. We need to recognize that the New Testament is the teaching of Jesus. It is the teaching of Jesus conveyed to us by the power of the Spirit of God through the apostles who officially represent his teaching and its application. The New Testament was not finished when Jesus ascended to heaven. But he continues to live and he continues to express his truth in the teaching of the disciples, of these chosen apostles. Again, just a little more on that in, the, in a moment. But I want to say, number three, the apostles also advanced the suffering of Jesus. We see this very pointedly in the work of the apostle Paul who says, Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. He's suffering, and it's for the good of the church. In my flesh, in this suffering for the gospel, I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body. That is the church. So I think that means in part that as the Apostle Paul is stretched out and receiving lashes on his back, one after another after another, he is thinking, I'm filling up the suffering of Jesus for his church. This is what I'm doing here. It's not a bad day. It's not bad luck. I should not, it's not because I didn't say it the right way or because God has forgotten to love me. It's because Jesus' death is filled up by the suffering of those who carry out that mission to the end. Now, understand what Paul is not saying. He's not saying that there's something insufficient in the sufferings of Christ to atone for sin. No. That's complete. Jesus suffered once, the book of Hebrews makes crystal clear. But his followers, those who take his teaching forward, they are suffering with Christ to save his people. Because the gospel will often lead to suffering. It will always, in some sense, lead to suffering. So the torturous death of Jesus, though wholly sufficient, necessitates this continuing reign of Christ to reach His people. The travail of ministering the gospel in a fallen world continues until the last soul turns to Christ. And Paul knew, as all the apostles did, that the cause of the gospel was a call to suffer. And so, tradition tells us, other than the Apostle John, every one of these men died an early death. 
they were martyred for their witness of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And again, we don't have a feast day for them. We don't revere them in a sense of worship, but we do honor and respect the work that they did as they were chosen by Christ to die for his name. Number four, the apostles were chosen to occupy an office foundational to Jesus' church. We see this so clearly displayed in Paul's writing to the Ephesians where he says, so then you are no longer strangers and aliens, you Gentiles who have responded to the gospel, but you are actually fellow citizens now with the saints, members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. And I ask you, Look at that passage. Look at what's highlighted in yellow. Can you just pull that out of there? Is our faith okay without that in there? No, Christ is the cornerstone. The apostles are the foundation. This is what has been provided for our salvation, and their veracity is absolutely essential to the equation. The church stands on the truthfulness of the eyewitness accounts of these apostles. And we have life then, in a sense, through their words. And so I ask the question, in what sense are the apostles of Christ the foundation of Eden Baptist Church? They are not a board wielding autocratic authority over the church. They didn't serve that way during their lifetimes. They don't serve that way now. They just make decisions and have votes and whatever they decided is what the church has to do. Not at all. They are the foundation of Eden Baptist Church because they were the recipients of the inspired word of God. They witnessed and spoke for Jesus Christ with his authority. And so where is the evidence that Eden Baptist Church is standing on the apostolic foundation that Jesus Christ set in place for his church? What's the evidence? This is it. Do we believe this? Do we trust it? Are we fed on what the apostles wrote? Because under the power of the Spirit of God, by the inspiration of the text, the Holy Spirit led them to say all that we need to hear from Jesus for this time. We stand on this foundation. This is where our church is truly and genuinely, as far as we show ourselves to be faithful, this is where we stand on the apostolic foundation. And so we say, may the risen Christ and the indwelling Holy Spirit continue to empower Eden Baptist Church to reverently treasure and rightly teach the New Testament as well as the Old Testament that paved the way to that New Testament. May we grow steadily deeper in our love and knowledge of the Holy Scriptures as we partner together. We're not a Bible study group as such. Many Bible studies among us, thankfully. But that's not what we are first and foremost, is a Bible study group. 
We are rather standing on what the apostles said as they spoke for Christ and putting into practice and obedience, living out the word that he declared to us. So as we close out this rich chapter of Scripture, let us rejoice today that our faith is not grounded in myths and foolish speculation. It's grounded in the historical realities of Jesus Christ come in the flesh, crucified, buried, risen, reigning at God's right hand. It's on the truth, on that foundation that we stand. And how we know how to live is to take what these apostles said as they spoke for Christ and to live it out, to believe its truthfulness and to put it into play in every corner of our lives. Our faith then does not ultimately rest on our individual devotion. It doesn't rest ultimately upon your deeds or our religious rituals together. That's not why we come together. We gather together to worship the name of the risen Christ. We gather together to hear his word. And it's by his word that we're being formed as his body. As that word is the living seed that brings us into the new birth. That the spirit of God uses to regenerate us. And then gives us ears and a desire to hear the wisdom of God as we read the scriptures together. So our faith rests in a savior who paid sin's price for us who died in our place as the Lamb of God and defeated death by rising from the grave. And we gather on this Lord's day as every Lord's day to sing His praise. To join with those apostles and say that He is Lord and King and coming Savior and the Sovereign of the universe forever and ever. To those who have not come to trust Christ as your Savior yet at this point in your life. We love that you're here. We encourage you to come continue to listen to His Word and to His truth. Hear the cry of our heart for you, but know, oh, there is solid ground in this world. There is solid ground. So many people looking for a cause that's not going to last any longer than their lifetime, if that. Standing in midair, trying to find something to stand upon, Jesus Christ is that solid ground. There is no other. And for the security of your soul in this unstable and dying world, come to this historically rooted salvation. The wonderful truth is that it doesn't cost anything. It's free. In fact, you can't give anything to it or you don't understand it. Come to this free gift of grace in Christ to provide the deliverance from sin deliverance from guilt, deliverance before a holy God, to receive from Him a home in His presence for eternity, to not go with Judas to your own place, separated from Him forever, but to go to His place in fellowship with Him eternally. That too, utterly rooted in historical reality. Come to fellowship with Christ 
through a spiritual rebirth accomplished not by your good works, but by the regenerating power of the Holy Spirit. To this message we come. To this foundation. On this foundation we stand. And we invite you to embrace Christ today by His grace alone. Let's pray. Father, we rejoice in the wonder of the provision that you have made to grant us salvation in Jesus' name. We have much to learn. We have much to grow. We praise you, Father, for the way in which you have worked to provide this salvation, to confirm it. We're grateful for the apostolic foundation on which we stand, that our feet are planted on solid ground. We rejoice. We give you thanks. And I pray that we, with the apostles and the disciples who surrounded them, I pray that we too, as disciples, would go and make disciples. I pray that we'd recognize that even suffering for the cause of Christ is glory. It is your grace to us to take this message to take this message to stand with Christ and to proclaim him crucified and risen. We pray Lord that you draw our church into that light to shine as light to serve as salt in this world to stand for Christ so despised and yet for some hearts strangely warmed to love the one they've never seen. Lord, we long for the day when our faith will become sight and we will see you and we will know in a way that we're stretching in our faith to know you now We long for that day when we know you are who you always said you were and we bow before you at your throne in eternity with joy and free of guilt and shame. Not because of how we lived, but because how Christ has taken our sin and paid the full penalty. We long for that day and pray that everyone that is here would be making their journey there by your grace alone. Through Christ we pray. Amen.